You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 82. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you so much for your time and attention today. Today on the show, I wanted to discuss the limitations of the warrior archetype. In my research and preparation for an upcoming episode on the Iliad by Homer, I came across Stephen Pressfield's blog in which he discusses the warrior archetype and several questions then that confront us when we read and study the warrior ethos, especially looking into the well of history. And this struck me in particular this morning when I was reading Pressfield's blog, episode 32, You Are Not a King, You Are a Conqueror. I'll include a link to it in the show notes so that you can watch the video and or read the transcript for yourself. But it piqued my interest because as of late in particular, I have struggled with temptation. One in particular. And that is, I know that within the context of my vocation, I am called to be charitable and to be kind because that is morally good. It is godly. And yet the temptation that I struggle with is that I want to lean into brutality and aggressiveness, not default aggression as Jocko Welling talks about in extreme ownership, but aggressiveness for the sake of, well, just getting in people's face. I think there is always the temptation for those of us who embrace a particular doctrine or discipline, if you want to call it that, that the warrior ethos is just that. It is a discipline. It is a doctrine. It embodies the attributes of integrity, dignity, practical wisdom, temperance, kindness, justice, charity, standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And so the very nature of the warrior ethos is to always seek toward the good, to be a good man or woman, to be good within your vocation, whether it be parent or spouse, whether it be coworker, boss, whether it be student or teammate. We are called to be charitable and kind, to be honorable in how we conduct ourselves, how we interface with others. And yet the temptation within that, like I said, is to give way to brutality and aggressiveness. Because within the warrior ethos, there is also then violence. There is an inherent innate violence within the warrior ethos because how does one protect and defend the other, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the enslaved? How do you stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves against those people who are predatory, who are adversarial, who themselves are aggressive and cruel. 
their brutality seeks to destroy and annihilate others. As more than one philosopher has noted, we must be careful when we fight monsters, lest we ourselves become monsters. And since I spend a significant amount of time in training and teaching Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu, dedicating myself to the study and the research of the warrior ethos, but likewise, I am called within my primary vocation as husband and father to protect and defend my wife and children, but to do it in such a way that I'm a model for them, that I am an example of integrity and dignity and practical wisdom and temperance and charity and kindness. I am to embody justice for them. Likewise, as a pastor, I'm called to be a man of God, to function as a theologian of the church, to live in the forgiveness that I have received from Jesus, and to then speak that forgiveness to others, to love others, even love those who hate me without cause, to be charitable and kind toward everyone. So I think there's a dichotomy there, and I think that it's good to struggle with that dichotomy and to not ignore it, not try to pave over it or smooth it out, but rather live in the tension between charity and kindness, which is good, and brutality and aggressiveness, which is cruel. And so to the point then of today's podcast and what we're going to read from Stephen Pressfield, we are called not to act like conquerors, not to behave brutally, not to engage in brutality towards others, even if they deserve it, even if it is earned, and that our aggression toward others must be tempered. It must be hemmed in and bound by self-control so that we behave like kings rather than solely conquering, conquering, conquering all the time. So Pressfield then asks that question. He gets to the heart of what I've been struggling with of late, which is, what are the limits of the warrior archetype? When does a virtue, for example, like the will to win, become the crime of brutality and senseless aggression? And as an example then of this historical example, Alexander the Great comes face to face with this temptation, with this issue on the banks of the Hydaspes River in India when he encounters and is confronted by King Porus. So Porus says to Alexander then, stay with me and I will teach you to be a king. Not a conqueror, but a king. And to this point then, Pressfield writes, Alexander's tutor was Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher. And Alexander's father, Philip, Philip of Macedon, brought the great philosopher to Macedonia to be a teacher to his son and the sons of his nobles. So we know that the young Alexander was exposed to and embraced with passion the loftiest concepts of honor and integrity. 
Alexander slept with a copy of the Iliad beneath his pillow. He embodied in his actions and in his ideals the best of Greek warrior culture from Achilles to Leonidas. He himself traced his ancestry to Achilles and to the sons of Heracles, the great hero himself. So already, Pressfield lays out for us a man in Alexander who was a philosopher and a warrior. He was taught by Aristotle. He was taught the lofty concepts of honor and integrity. He read and slept with a copy of the Iliad. So he's well-versed in the warrior ethos and the examples of heroes like Achilles and Leonidas. And yet, as Pressfield says, and yet, but, but Alexander burned the Greek city of Thebes to the ground. His army massacred tens of thousands of people. He leveled and looted cities. He displaced peoples and depopulated entire regions. In other words, as Pressfield says, in Alexander's conquests, we witness the warrior archetype pushed far beyond the pure Spartan ideal embodied at Thermopylae. He carried this forward into the realm of conquest, domination, subjugation, enslavement, and worse. That, for me, is the heart of the temptation and the struggle that I named at the beginning of this episode. To cross over from what is good and right and just, from what is honorable, to all of a sudden being focused now on conquest, conquering other people, dominating other people, subjugating them, enslaving them to your will, and worse. Because at the heart of what I'm after is a moral issue, which is conquest. Whether it be in interpersonal relationships, when we seek to dominate the other person and subjugate them to what we think is best for not only ourselves then, but for them, how they become a projection of our desires, our cravings, our wants, and our needs. They become, in a way, a mirror to us that reflect back at us the true person that we have become in relation to them. So the idea of conquest, the moral issue of conquest, for me anyways, and maybe for you then, is the struggle to not become that person who uses their training, who uses their knowledge as a justification or an alibi to cross that moral line, to justify to ourselves, well, it's okay to function in an invasive way in this relationship or at our job or in the gym. We seek to justify our domination of others to subjugate them to our will, to what we choose, not then for ourselves only, but for them as well. And essentially, we don't have a relationship with them. Rather, we have a master-slave 
relation with them. We cross that line. We give into that temptation. And all of a sudden, we go from charity to brutality. And we go from kindness to aggression. We go from goodness to cruelty. And we slip across that line so easily, like a boat that, that is carried along by the current so that we don't even have to put our oars in the water and paddle. And once we cross that moral line, once we cease to be a protector and become a conqueror, when the idea of conquest becomes a reality because we make it a reality and we no longer are functioning morally within the relationship, what then? Alexander and his army justified the overthrow of the Persian Empire. How? Payback for Persia's invasion of Greece that had happened generations earlier. Remember Marathon. Remember Thermopylae. Remember Salamis. And as Pressfield says, okay, fair enough. We remember. Those were horrific events. Those were experiences that were seared into the collective memory of the Greeks. Did the Persians have it coming? You could argue that, sure. But clearly, Alexander's ambition was not satisfied with the burning of Persepolis or the death of Persia's King Darius. He wanted to keep going. He wanted to conquer the world. And this, this whole matter then, reaches its zenith, its apex. It reaches its crisis point in India, on the banks of the Hydaspes River. When Alexander comes to the borders of King Porus's domain. Porus, P-O-R-U-S. The ancient texts declare that Porus was so tall that he seemed like a man mounted on a horse. But he was also known as a great and benevolent king, renowned for his wisdom, whose lands were prosperous and whose people were free. And for this reason, then Porus parlays with Alexander. He meets Alexander on a great barge in the middle of the river, that bounded his kingdom. It's the no man's land between Alexander's army and Porus's kingdom. So he welcomes Alexander onto the barge and offers to adopt Alexander as his son. And then, upon his death, give as an inheritance to Alexander all of his land and kingdom. Think about that. King Porus, whose army dwarfed Alexander's, whose kingdom was enormous. This man who had more wealth and more power and more influence than Alexander could have imagined even for himself meets him in the middle of the river in the no man's land and says, if you will relent on your, your need your drive, your obsession with conquest, if you abandon it, if you let go of it, you can become my son 
And when I die, it's all yours. Stay with me, he says. Stay with me and I will teach you to be a king. What would you do if that were the offer on the table? None of your soldiers needs to die today. None of my army needs to shed blood today. You can stop with the conquest. You can abandon your obsessive need to keep marching forward. I am not your enemy. I don't need to be your enemy. You don't need to make me your enemy. This does not have to end in bloodshed. Think of the charity and the kindness that Porus shows to Alexander and his army. This is a good man. This is a moral man who understands justice, who is truly wise in my opinion. And yet, what is Alexander's reaction? Well, it is described in this way. His face went dark with fury. He was a king. He was the mightiest king on earth. And how does Porus respond to this? With charity, with kindness. He says to Alexander, you are not a king, my young friend. You are a conqueror. Look at my kingdom, Boris says. My kingdom is governed with wisdom and justice. The people prosper. They're happy. The land flourishes and yields its bounty. Men are free to speak and to exercise their ambition. Now compare this to the lands whose freedom you have taken, the nations you have conquered, Egypt, Persia, Medea, Babylonia, a hundred others. How have their peoples fared beneath your rule? You simply turned them over to the same princes who oppressed them before, while you take their treasure and move on. Is any man happier or wiser because of your rule? Is any more prosperous or more free? Have even those of your own forces seen real profit from their toil? Your army is like a fleet at sea, which controls only that patch of ocean over which it passes, while the rest of the main remains wild and subject to all manner of evils. Was Alexander truly a king? Did he actually rule over anything or anyone? As Porus describes it, the answer is emphatically no. He is not a king. He calls himself a king. Those around him call him king. He was the prince until Philip died, and then he became king, in name at least, in title. And yet... Why does he keep marching forward? Why does he not set up a government or a way of living for his subjects in every single region he passes through? 
when he goes to Egypt and he conquers Egypt, what does he do for them? Nothing. As Porus points out, you leave them under the care of the princes who opposed them and oppressed them before. What do you do? Well, you take their treasure and then you pay your soldiers and you pay for what you need to go on to the next, the next campaign, the next theater of war, the next conquest, Persia, Medea, Babylonia, a hundred others. If you want to see what this looks like, you can read the Afghan campaign by Stephen Pressfield, which is about Alexander's army in Afghanistan, which is a frontline infantryman's perspective of Alexander's campaign to get to India. And then there, I think it's the tides of war, is about Alexander and the perspective from Alexander and those around Alexander on his march to India. Let me just look that up real quick to make sure I'm telling you the right book. Because I've read so many of his books at this point, I keep forgetting. I think Tides of War might be the other one. Yeah, that's Alcibiades. I will include in the show notes both a link to Afghan campaign, The Virtues of War. That's what it's called. So I'll include a link to The Virtues of War and to the Afghan campaign, both historical fiction novels, both uh, praised by critics and historians for their historical accuracy. So Afghan campaign, great book. I read it twice. And The Virtues of War, another great book, gives you an insider's perspective into Alexander and his generals and how they ran their campaigns. But at the heart is this, at the heart of this narrative, at the heart of this conversation remains this struggle that all of us face if we are going to embrace a particular discipline, a particular doctrine, such as the warrior ethos. The temptation to move from charity to brutality, from kindness to aggression, from what is good to what is cruel, and to justify it. In Alexander's case, by saying, but I've liberated you. I am your savior. In fact, he was called the Messiah by different people. So he even moved from being a king to being a god. And whether he believed his own hype or not, he behaved in that way. He carried himself as if he were a god or believed he was a god. And yet, as Porus notes, your army is like a fleet at sea, which controls only that patch of ocean over which it passes, while the rest of the main remains wild and subject to all manner of evils. So discussing this with a teammate the other night, he's blown out both of his knees over the years of training jujitsu. And he's still coming back from the last injury that he suffered. And we were discussing the importance of balance when it comes to training and that you have to establish your own baseline for training, for what you consider successful training sessions, what your goals are when you come into the gym, because it's dangerous to compare yourself to others, especially if those others are younger and more athletic if they're focused on competition and you're not. 
It's easy to get caught up in the excitement and the enthusiasm of others and to then fall into the temptation, give way to the temptation to model your training regimen on that of others. And you lose yourself. You lose track of yourself in that. You get caught up in the rat race and keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. And what I was discussing with my teammate is that I started in jiu-jitsu and then Muay Thai to add to my toolbox. And the toolbox is my program of sobriety. So training helps me stay sober. It gives me the tools necessary for me to live sober and to enjoy clarity that I did not have when I was using and abusing alcohol and drugs. So that's number one. Number two, I do it to make myself a better man, a better husband and father, a better pastor. I've talked about that numerous times on this podcast. And if I then get so caught up in the pursuit of being that man that I imagine for myself, if I become so obsessed with training and being at the gym and I lose track of my motive and the intent for going into the gym in the first place way back six years ago, all of a sudden now, I say, well, I'm here to stay sober. It helps me stay sober. I'm here for my wife and kids. I'm here for my congregation and others so that I become a better man and, and show up for them when they need me. And yet I'm at the gym seven days a week, twice a day, and never at home. What am I doing? Well, at a certain point, I lied to myself. I allowed myself to cross that line. And now I'm using my training as an excuse to not show up for my wife and kids, to not show up for my congregation and others who need me to show up for them because I'm busy becoming the man they need me to be. You get so caught up in the pursuit, so focused in, narrowly focused in on your goals and smashing those goals and overcoming those obstacles and challenges. You get so focused in on becoming better and better and better and growth. You lose track of the whole reason you're there in the first place. And when that happens, at least in my experience, you cross that line. You open the door to temptation and it comes in and becomes full-blown selfishness. You go from being a charitable and kind person who's focused on the needs of others to using those other people as a justification and an alibi to become brutal and aggressive and cruel. Why are you complaining about the amount of time that I spend at the gym when I'm doing it for you? I go to the gym and train so I can become a better person, so I can show up for you. So why are you always complaining and hammering on me for having to go to the gym and do what makes me better? When it comes to that, there's a breach that's opened up in your relationship with your partner or your friends, or even if your teammates ask, hey man, I notice you're always here. So uh, you told me the whole reason you're here is so that you can, you know, be at home and show up for your family and show up for people at church and show up for your neighbors. But you're always here, man. So how can you do both? 
if you lose track, if you get lost in the pursuit of your goals and forget the whole reason you're there in the first place, the whole reason you started this, along the way you wander off the path and either fall into the ditch or just wander off into the woods. And you're blind to what's happening because all you can do is justify yourself and make up alibis for yourself because you've become blind in your obsession, in your pursuit of becoming a better person. You cross that line and now you're degraded. You've degraded yourself. You have perverted the whole reason that you're there in the first place. And that's what Porus is pointing out to Alexander. You've lost the thread, Alexander. You're not seeing the big picture. You've become so focused on conquest that you haven't stopped long enough to look over your shoulder at what's left in your wake. And what's there is not a kingdom. You're not a king. What's left is your conquests, the lands and the people that you've pillaged. That's what's left. You didn't show them a better way. You didn't bequeath them with better laws. You didn't leave them with better princes. You didn't enrich in them. You didn't enliven them. You didn't liberate them. You simply stomped over them, took what you needed, and kept on moving. That's not what a king does. That's what a conqueror does. To repeat what Porus said, Observe my kingdom, governed with wisdom and justice. The people here prosper, and they're happy. The land flourishes and yields its bounty. Men are free to speak and to exercise their ambition. So we could even ask this question in the present tense. We could ask this question through the eyes of Porus, with the words of Porus. Is the United States ruled over by kings and queens, so to speak. We have representative governance, I know that, but it's actually we're more like taxation without representation at this point. I think the receipts prove that. But just play along with me for a while, won't you? <laughs> Are our leaders behaving like royalty, like nobility? And I mean that specifically. Are they behaving in a noble way? Are they governing us with wisdom and justice? Is the United States a kingdom or is it a conquered people that have been pillaged by those who are governing us? Are we ruled over by Alexanders who see themselves as our Messiah, our Savior, who expect us to treat them as if they are gods and worship them as such, who invade our communities? and our homes, and pillage what is ours, and take it for themselves to pay off their soldiers, to finance their campaigns? Do they leave us with princes who oppress them the same as before, who oppress us the same as before, while they take our treasure and move on? I think the answer is self-evident. Where do you live at? Do you live in a kingdom ruled by kings and queens who are noble? 
who govern you with wisdom and justice? Do you prosper and are you happy? Does the land on which you walk and live flourish and yield its bounty to you and others? Are you free to speak and to exercise your ambition? Or are you ruled by conquerors who take your treasures and move on, who oppress you, who take your freedom from you and squash your ambitions? Are you ruled over by a porous or have you been conquered by an Alexander? Because let's be honest, it's hard to be a porous. It's hard to govern your household with wisdom and justice. It's difficult to want prosperity and happiness for others who are selfish, who are self-centered, who only care about their wants and needs, who seek after pleasure and convenience, who only want to be safe and taken care of, who want to avoid pain and struggle at any cost. They're not intelligent. They're not creative. They're not beautiful, noble people. They don't exercise integrity or dignity. They're not wise. They're not kind or charitable. They're brutal and aggressive and cruel themselves. So the temptation, of course, is to become like them, to interface with them like they're interfacing with you, and to only worry about yourself, your prosperity, your happiness, whether or not what you possess flourishes and yields its bounty, your freedom, satisfying your ambitions. That's the easy path. That's the path of the conqueror. And yet, what do you really rule over? You and your family, you and your friends, your teammates, whoever it might be. You're nothing more than a ship. You're a ship at sea, and you control the patch of ocean over which you pass, but that's all. And the rest of it is wild and subject to all manner of evils. And isn't that what our country has become? Isn't that what so many countries around the world have become? wild and subject to all manner of evil because we don't seek the prosperity and the happiness of each other, but only of ourselves. We don't care if other people's garden flourishes so long as ours does. We don't care how much vegetables or fruit their garden yields so much as we care about the bounty of our own. And freedom to speak, well, you're free to speak as long as you say what I like to hear. And you can exercise your ambition as long as it benefits me. You see, Alexander has been conquered by the sin of selfishness. In fact, that is the literal definition of sin. It is to be curved in on one's self, to be selfish, self-centered. Whereas Porus is offering him what I would argue is a better way, the way of selflessness. Alexander is like a spoiled child with a toy. He plays with it for a little bit and then throws it away and demands a new toy. And this is how he functions. He always wants a new toy. He always wants what he wants when he wants it right now, which is why he's always moving on to the next conquest. Whereas Porus is saying, be satisfied with what you have. Be satisfied 
to rule over and govern the people that you have been given to rule over and govern. Seek their well-being because it's your well-being. A people that are happy and prosperous, a people that are governed with wisdom and justice, they tend not to rebel against the government. They tend not to demand that the king and queen have their heads chopped off by the guillotine. They don't storm the Bastille. They don't burn down cities. They don't attack people that oppose them in the streets. The well-being of your people is your well-being. But again, that temptation to selfishness, the temptation to focus only on yourself and conquering your goals, overcoming obstacles and challenges, subjugating and enslaving other people to your will and your whims, that's easy. It's easy to destroy. It takes no creativity. It takes almost no effort. But to create, to construct, to make something that will last for five or six or 60 generations, that requires sacrifice, personal sacrifice. It demands that you focus on others, people you haven't even met yet. And saying to yourself, the well-being of others, their well-being is more important than my own satisfaction, my own happiness. Because again, you recognize that the well-being and happiness of others, the prosperity and bounty of others, the freedom of others will open the door to you, to what is good. And there you will find your well-being. There you will find a satisfying life. Not in selfishly justifying your pursuits, not by making up alibis to justify not being at home, showing up late for work, putting in a half-assed effort, not showing up for friends and family when they need you, being so focused on yourself that you don't see how you're hurting other people, how you're trampling over them. That's what Porus is offering Alexander. And he gets angry. He's angry because he is a king. He doesn't need Porus to tell him who he is. He knows who he is. And he's proven it countless times. But finally, Porus speaks the deepest of truths. In fact, it is the deepest truth. Porus says to Alexander, what law of heaven gives you the right to invade my country, which has done you no wrong and which only wishes to honor you and be your friend? You would do what to my people? Murder and enslave us? Destroy our homes and ruin our families? For what? The vain exercise of conquest? You and your army bring evil only. You are like savages who know no better. The rule, so to speak, the definition of a just war is when you act in defense of a people who are suffering under the thumb of an invading army, an aggressive force. You cannot invade another country and call it just war. But if a tribe or an army or a country invades 
the country of your ally, for example, or invades your country, that's a just war then because you are defending and protecting your people from an aggressor. But note how we always seek to justify invading other countries in the name of protecting and defending our allies. And then once in the country, we engage in nation building. We engage in backdoor dealings. How the military industrial complex keeps us in endless wars, over 80 at present, because that's how it profits. It profits from war. And so it doesn't want to solve the problem. It doesn't want to simply protect our allies from an invading force. Even if that force is evil, even if that force is a terrorist entity, at a certain point, once the threat has been neutralized, then all of these other political interests, these financial interests, these corporate interests move in and they start reimagining and redefining the parameters of war for the sake of profit. They are the conquerors. They are the Alexanders. They are the very people that Porus describes here. And yet we must ask, is this a just war at this point? When we cease protecting those who are being oppressed and enslaved, when we cease to stand up and hold the moral high ground, what are we then? Are we savages who know no better? Is it a vain exercise of conquest? Are we destroying homes and ruining families? Are we creating terrorists by fighting terrorism? Are we murdering and enslaving others? What law of heaven gives you the right to invade my country, which has done you no wrong and which only wishes to honor you and be your friend? You want to be the king? You want to take my head and replace me on the throne? Why? What do you want to do to my people? Nothing good, apparently. You think you're a savior? You think you're a god worthy of worship? You're a savage. You've forgotten your lessons, Alexander. You're not an Achilles. You're not a Leonidas. You're nothing like them anymore. You're a a funhouse mirror, distorted image of them. You're a caricature. You're a parody of a warrior. You are everything that I, Porus, am not. You lost the thread, man. You forgot the whole reason for this in the first place. And yet in Alexander's march, in his conquest of Egypt and Persia and Medea and Babylonia and other countries, the truth has been revealed to him. The truth about his motive and intent for starting off from Greece on this campaign in the first place. Why did he really go to Persia? Was it for revenge? For what Persia did to the Greeks so many generations previous? Or was it Alexander's lust for power, for conquest? to be worshipped as a god. 
The fascinating thing then, as Pressfield writes, the fascinating thing about this exchange to me is that it is a clash of two archetypes, the warrior and the king. Clearly, the king is the superior, morally, ethically, spiritually. This leads us to the moral dilemma at the heart of the warrior archetype. What if, what if the warrior virtues of courage, obedience, brotherhood, unity, the willing embrace of adversity, etc., are used for evil? What if? What if you cease to thank God for his gifts to you and instead stand in the place of God and demand to be worshipped as a God who bestows the crumbs from the master's table upon the dogs whom he's conquered? What if the warrior uses the virtues of courage and obedience, brotherhood and unity and the willing embrace of adversity for evil. What then? Pressfield continues, surely Hitler's Gestapo or Stalin's secret police organized themselves internally along principles that are not dissimilar from and even inspired by the Spartans and the Athenians and the Macedonians. And let's not let ourselves as Americans off the hook either. The catalog of our own dark side endeavors began when the first slaveholder's foot touched these shores and has not abated since. What we are up against here are the limits of the warrior archetype. To be strong and brave, to be self-disciplined, to love one's brothers is not enough. A moral dimension must be identified and integrated or the warrior is nothing but a butcher. Mm. This reminds me of Apocalypse Now. Kurtz's speech at the end. What is he? Is he a soldier? Is he a leader of men? Is he a butcher? Is he a traitor to his country? What is he? What is Kurtz? That is the question that is posed by the movie. It's always in the background, which is, is he a madman? Is he an anti-hero? Who is he? And there, you know, for that matter, who's Willard? Who is sent to kill him? Willard's an assassin. But how can, you, how can you be an assassin in the middle of a war? Or more specifically, how can you even define what murder is in the midst of war? And who is it that's going to define that? What is justifiable and what is unjustified? We could look at Dien Bien Phu. We could look at Mi Lai. could look at what happened in the fall of Saigon. There's countless examples from Vietnam that we could look at and ask, where's the line? And then who draws that line? 
And then who is expected to hold that line? You take a man, you take a boy, and you instill in him the virtues of courage and obedience, brotherhood and unity and the willing embrace of adversity, and then you send him into a conflict, into a theater of war. And are the, the generals engaged in such a way that they understand what's happening on the front lines? In the context of the movie's narrative, when Willard is sent up the river to find Kurtz, is Kurtz evil? Morally, is he evil? Is Willard evil? Are the men who send Willard up the river evil? Is there anyone in Apocalypse Now who, if we're honest and objective, isn't evil? Is there anyone who actually embodies and manifests the virtues of courage, obedience, brotherhood, unity, and a willing embrace of adversity and doesn't use those for evil? And is that one of the subtexts of the narrative of Apocalypse Now? You send soldiers into battle and you call them warriors. But are you behaving as a wise and just leader? Or are you sending them in to be butchers? Knowingly sending them in to be butchers when they think that what they're doing is good and virtuous. How many times have leaders lied to their armies, lied to the population in order to manipulate and control, in order to pillage, in order to steal, in order to conquer? And then when the damage is done, when there's nothing left to take, the warriors, the soldiers, the fighters are sent home and told, get a job, go back to school, settle down, make a family for yourself. Thank you for your service. What we are up against with the questions that I ask, with the questions that Pressfield poses, is the limit of the archetype. Because to be strong and brave, to be self-disciplined, to love your brothers in arms, that's not enough. Because there must be a moral dimension and it must be identified. And not just identified, not just spoken out loud, not just written down and codified. It must be integrated. It must be embodied by the individual and by the whole. Otherwise, the warrior is nothing but a butcher. He's nothing but brutality and aggression and cruelty. What the moral question identifies is the need for self-restraint. That justice and empathy and inclusion must somehow be added to the basic raw energy and power of the warrior archetype. You have to draw the moral boundary. And it must be clear and overt 
and explicit so that when you struggle with temptation, as I began this podcast discussing, the line is clear and thick and that wall is high and sturdy. Because to me, there's nothing more shameful than to fall to temptation, to open the gates within the walls, to let in temptation, to let in that sin, that selfish pursuit of conquest, simply for the reward that it offers us. A moment of pleasure, that feeling of power, the intoxication of satisfying your desire at the expense of others. To feel for just a moment like you're divine. Like time doesn't matter. Your physical, intellectual, and emotional limitations don't matter. The rules don't apply to you. How many of us in those moments, those impulsive moments, abandon our moral standards to give in, to enjoy that five minutes of mouth pleasure, to watch simulated sex rather than establishing real concrete relationships with flesh and blood people who self-medicate with alcohol and drugs in order to escape the pain rather than to confront it and move through it. To abandon, to turn our back, to self-justify, getting rid of, dispensing with courage, obedience to a higher calling, brotherhood, putting others first, serving others, holding the unit together, keeping the clan intact, embracing adversity and struggle as a means to overcome your limitations, your shortcomings, your bad habits, your addictions. Without that moral line, that standard by which we hold ourselves accountable to ourselves and others and God, what is the purpose of self-restraint and self-discipline other than to keep the doors shut, keep the gates locked so that temptation cannot even stick its head in the door. We can exercise self-restraint. We can have a strong sense of justice. We can sympathize with other people and where they're at. We can include others, even if we disagree with them, in our discussions. Otherwise, that basic raw energy, that power that we bring with us wherever we go, especially those of us who are trained up in violence. I think we must constantly be on the lookout for the temptation to open the doors to the violence that we keep locked away inside our citadels, our fortresses. That is the way that we think our motivations, our intent, how we feel, and then how we behave based on those thoughts and those feelings. 
There's a book called The Inner Citadel, and it's an overview of Stoic philosophy. It's a fantastic book, The Inner Citadel. It's very readable. It's comprehensive. Basically, if you want to know anything about Stoicism, that's the book I think to get. But that's the point of the inner citadel, is to strengthen your mind, to build up walls thick and tall around your emotions so that they don't get away from you and they don't start controlling your decisions. Because that's when you start acting like a conqueror rather than a king or a queen. I mean, how many people do we see in society today, both leaders and citizens, who allow their feelings to make their decisions for them? who are nothing but a raw nerve walking through life. And do they know how to exercise charity and kindness? Rarely. Do they have a strong sense of justice? No, it's upside down and backwards. They call injustice justice and they call justice injustice. Do they behave brutally towards others that they disagree with? Yes. Are they aggressive toward others who disagree with them? Yes. Are they cruel? That's their defining characteristic. We see it every night on the news. We see it every time a politician stands up and speaks. We see it in the streets of our cities. We see it being set loose in our homes and unfortunately even in our churches. It's not enough to be strong or brave or self-disciplined. It's not enough to love your brothers more than you love yourself if there is no moral line if you don't have a clear standard because what you tolerate in your presence becomes that standard so if you're not clear morally on why you're doing what you're doing when the temptation comes to cross that line you're gonna self-justify you're gonna come up with alibis You're going to figure out ways to become willfully blind to the truth about yourself that you have crossed that line, that you don't carry yourself like a king or a queen anymore. You're not behaving nobly, but instead, you're cruel, you're brutal, you're unkind, you're unjust, you're savage. And I think that's important for those of us who sometimes joke about that. I'm a savage. I know guys at the gym that joke about that all the time. I don't like to talk that way anymore unless I'm doing it ironically. Because as Porus says, savages don't know any better. Savages don't have a moral line. Savages are impulsive. They run on impulse. They're cruel. They're brutal. They're aggressive. Because they're not capable of detachment. They're not capable of observation and objective thought. They can't control their emotions. They can't focus. They're savages. So today then, I will leave you with this. Maybe think about how you are tempted to cross that line or how you have failed to build up that moral line, to build that wall tall and thick so that it is sturdy and steadfast against the temptations that come against you in your daily life. And ask yourself, ask yourself, have I become so enamored by men like Alexander the Great that I've forgotten to take a step back and objectively judge them as I have done? 
reading this opens my eyes to a dimension that I hadn't considered before about Alexander, which is maybe he's not worthy of our hero worship. Maybe he's not the great Alexander. Maybe we have more to learn from Porus than we do from the Alexanders. Maybe that's why we get confused sometimes and wander off the path. We open the gates and let temptation come in. Is because we don't take that objective, detached look at our heroes, at those who have inspired us thus far, and to embrace the fact that they're just human beings. They're just men and women like you and me. They have the same flaws as you and me. They struggle with the same temptations as you and me. And yet there are men like Porus who can point us in another direction, who can raise those questions such as, are you really a king or are you a conqueror? That can force us to ask, what are the limits of the warrior archetype? When does virtue, like the will to win, like the will to succeed, become the crime of brutality and senseless aggression toward others? And I think this exchange between Alexander and Porus helps us a lot in considering those questions. So if anything, take away from this podcast today that perhaps it is not the way of the noble man or woman. It is not the good path to behave like a savage, to follow Alexander and to march with his army through your life. But perhaps it's time that we say, you were good for a season. You helped us for a season, Alexander. But now I find myself having to join Porus's court because I think his way of wisdom and justice, of prosperity and success, of freedom and ambition is the better path. That's all I got today, Space Monkeys. Talk to you again soon. Peace.